All right, before we derail. Welcome much. back to the DI scoreboard, everybody. Yeah, you want that on that a podcast be- every week? Is that, is that better? No. <laughs> okay, okay, you, okay, golden pipes, go ahead. Elmo's going through puberty. That's what that sounds like. <laughs> I could really, I could lower my voice this week. Welcome back to the ice cream. Do it. Welcome back to the DI Scoreboard, everyone. I am your host, Austin Hansen, joined as always by my co-host, Chris Werner. Chris, how are we this evening? We're fantastic this evening, Austin. We've got a special episode for you guys today. Um, I'm going to talk about a big project that Austin worked on for the Daily Island for the first part of the of the section of the episode, and then uh, we got a special guest for you to close it out uh, later, later on. Yeah, later in the show, we'll be joined by Mac McClear, uh, reigning Big Ten Conference champion, uh, was the individual medalist at the Big Ten tournament at Crooked Stick last year out in Indiana, right, Chris? He sure was. He's the face of Iowa men's golf now that uh, Alex Shockey has moved on. There are no more Shockeys in the pipeline. So uh, McClear's kind of leading the bunch there. So it's going to be a, a good time chatting with him. I'm sure a lot of... Uh, a lot of good insights and we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's definitely going to be a, an, an entertaining listen. So I would highly suggest you sticking around. Yeah. I'm kind of the, the old man around here. Very rarely do we get a guest uh, that's older than me, but I do believe Mac McClure has been here longer than I have, Chris. Uh, I think you're incorrect. He is I'm incorrect. Junior. He hasn't. Yes. He is a junior. He is a junior. Wow. Okay. So he's been here since what? 19 then? So you, you are still an old man. Hate to break it to you. Still the old man on the podcast. Well, now I'm going to teach the kids about some murals and then tell them to get off my lawn. Go right um, <laughs> So uh, I referenced it there. I worked on a big project for the Daily Island this week. Uh, came out on Wednesday. It's really niche, I would say. Something a lot of people maybe don't think about. But I, I noticed... Uh, as I pooped at the field house with Chris and done classes there, things like that here on campus, I've noticed that there are these strange murals in the main gym and they surround the fourth floor track. And so I started to do a little digging on them. And they're, they're kind of hard to describe for the listeners at home. Uh, like a lot of people have described them as alien or superheroic, robotic. Uh, they're certainly attention grabbers. Uh, Chris, I know you have some thoughts on them and how strange they are. How would you sort of characterize them for the listeners and all? I will begin by saying that they are definitely something to look at. They, they're, de- they're not really like, like anything I've ever seen before. It's, it's a very unique style. Also, sorry for saying very unique. That's one of my pet peeves. Um, you're either unique or you're not. But it's kind of a exaggerated style kind of like a caricature and so it's kind of a staple of the field house somewhere that I I often um, frequent but yeah it's it's just something that you kind of see and then you don't really think about it but um, they definitely have a pretty interesting story for sure yeah what I imagine that I would find when I started to research these would just be like oh 
you know, the university had like some children's group or something or some like high school club come in and paint these 10 murals um, of these like figures and bright green and blue uh, and, you know, other colors like that, like really eye-catching sort of comic strip or advertisement art just to fill the blank walls. But what I found was actually something a lot different. Um, each of these murals measures at about eight and a half feet in height. And the artist that was the University of Iowa Museum of Arts and the UI in general commissioned, his name's Carl Wurzum. And like these strange figures are actually what he uh, was renowned for until his death in May of 2021. The story of these murals actually kind of starts in 1978. The Iowa legislature passed um, the art and state buildings, um, some, some new rules for that, and one half of 1% of every state building's budget must be reallocated to art. Well, these paintings weren't commissioned until 1996. Um, they cost the university about $50,000 in 1996 money. And, you know, people I talked to about the mural said, why not put a tiger hawk there? Why not do this? Why not do that? It's to satisfy that Art and State Buildings Act, um, which was actually repealed in, in July of 2017. I guess politicians in Iowa decided that they, they no longer value art <laughs> or want to force people to look at, at art that, that a lot of people, I think, Chris, would, would not be super upset if it, it went away because it is so weird and eclectic, even though uh, now after doing the research and reporting I've done, it has a lot of value. Yeah, I feel like somebody that hasn't done the extensive research that you've done would kind of just look at it and be like, I mean, I guess it's cool, but like it doesn't serve a purpose, like a greater purpose in the space that it's in, right? It, it would look cool in like a comic book type of gallery with other pieces that are like it, but like in a college, on a like college field house wall, I mean, they definitely filled the space, but that's pretty much all I can say about it because it didn't, you know, it doesn't, you don't know what it means. It does, it's not connected to anything else around it. So yeah, I feel like they, those pieces would be better served in a different spot, but I mean, it, I'm not, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that it's a it's a strange place to put them. But after he after kind of hearing your story, um, there's definitely deeper meaning um, behind them. So yeah, the plaque. There's no placard. There's not anything that tells you or indicates what the paint is, like what the paintings are. Not on the main gym. Not on the upper track. Like the only way I knew that someone, an actual artist, Carl Wurzum, his name, even painted that is because I had looked it up on the University of Iowa Facility Management website. Um, and the University of Iowa Museum of Art, I'll just refer to it as uh, UIMA from here on out, the director of that at the time, his name was Stephen Prokopov. He was a friend with Wurzum, who was part of a group called the Harry Who, some Chicago area Im imagists that were sort of known for their like pop or comic art and revitalizing uh, Chicago's art scene, um, but he commissioned him literally just to fill the space and comply with that art and state buildings legislation uh, that came out in 1978. Like 96 rolls around, Iowa's got to 
get that art in there and they make it happen. Wurzum sends them their, you know, his original designs and sign painters come to the uh, field house, get some scaffolding around the track and up go the murals. And that's, that's not necessarily where the story stops now because on January 12th, the University of Iowa approved a master plan uh, to sort of revitalize campus and its architecture. Um, and that includes uh, the demolition of the field house. So University of Iowa hospitals and clinics can build a new ambulatory care center. Obviously I use the field house now, a lot of people use the field house. There's plans for another new recreation space in addition to the CRWC when the field house comes down, but it's got a soft spot in my heart, Chris. And when that thing goes down and they build the new ambulatory care center, that'll be, that'll be a sad day for me. Granted, I'll be way gone from the university of Iowa 10 years from now, but still. Yeah, we both will. And yeah, all I can kind of think about when you talk about that is like at the, at the end of one of those like coming of age comedies about like college kids you know fumbling and bumbling their way through and then like the the last scene of the movie is like they come back as 40 year olds and come back to like the frat house or whatever and like to look at it and stuff and then they roll the credits but um because i am not a frat boy uh, i kind of view the field house in that way you know it was was sort of a a place it's i mean it still is at this in this day where you know you just hang out play basketball do whatever We've had our badminton escapades in there as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a sad thing. And I'm, I'm sure it's one of those things where maybe not a lot of students really, it held a really special place in their heart, but they pretty much everybody on the campus of University of Iowa knows where that is, knows what's in there. And uh, it's definitely, I mean, it has something for everybody athletically, you know, there's, obviously basketball, a track, a bunch of weight rooms and things like that. And also uh, can't forget about the cafe in the lobby, some dank smoothies and all, obviously the pool and everything. So anything you could want to work out or do anything active, you could, you could go to the field house. So a lot of, a lot of students use that, use that to their advantage for sure to, at, at, at the UI. Carly, I see your raised hand. I would assume it's to correct Chris in saying that the field house does not have a smoothie bar. Partially, that is at the wreck. But oh, I want to say um, the field house has also been used for so much more than athletics. I know my freshman year um, was 2019-2020, and I got to go there to caucus um, because I was a huge swing state, so we run the first caucus, and that was the caucus place for any West Side residence hall. So I know that that holds a special place in my heart because that was one of the first times I actually got to become involved in politics on campus, and that's a really important um, part of living in Iowa, in my opinion, and especially um, anybody who comes from out of state, they learn really fast that the caucus is a big deal. And so I'm very surprised to hear that they're going to demolish this place. And I know I've had plenty of friends who have taken just those one um, semester hour classes like kickboxing or other sports that are often taught at the field house, and they really do enjoy it. So even if you don't use it for recreation, you could have had a class there. And I know a lot of kids are really going to be sad to hear that this is going. Yeah, the Fieldhouse uh, also houses the Sport and Recreation Management Program here, which I'm a student, and the entire Department of Health and Human Physiology. Um, but there are, are drawbacks to the Fieldhouse. Pipes frequently burst. It's, it's, it's a 95-year-old building, you know. Uh, there's a certain degree of nostalgia to it, right? Because before 2010, the Iowa Swim and Dive teams competed there. 
uh, before Carver Hawk Arena was built in 1983. The men's wrestling team, women's basketball, men's basketball teams competed there. So the field house is this very nostalgic place and now it's about to come down. And the question now is, how do you preserve these murals that are on uh, the walls there? Because if you're gonna demolish the whole thing, how do you save the murals? I requested a comment from the University of Iowa and I actually got one um, from Rod Leonards who is in charge of uh, finance development and uh, sort of their key the campus architect here. And, and he said they're gonna do what they can to save, preserve, or at least recognize the murals. So uh, that'll be a big task uh, to get these huge eight and a half foot murals that are painted directly on the wall preserved or out of the field house before it goes down. And all this information that I found was actually from a University of Iowa Museum of Art commission file, um, which was incredibly difficult uh, to find in certain respects because it was thought that it was destroyed in the flood of 2008, like it was in a basement of a bunch of files that was flooded and like all the information about these were lost to like the sands of time. And there was like no way to figure out what they were, where they were at, uh, why they're there. Um, but then I started to find them and I, I'm really glad I did the story to sort of uh, shed some light on that. But enough about my story. Uh, it came out Wednesday. It's called The Mural Mystery, the story of Carl, Carl Wurzum and the Iowa Fieldhouse. Um, now let's swing it over to our interview with Mac McClear. Whoosh. We are now joined by Iowa men's golfer Mac McClear. He is the reigning individual Big Ten champion. I think the only player to shoot under par last year at Crooked Stick and a member of the um, Big Ten All-First team as well. That was one of two wins last spring for him. And the junior seems to be kind of back on his game after a strong showing in Puerto Rico last week with a tie for ninth in one of the strongest fields in golf. Mac, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. And so I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it. Taking back to last week, obviously, playing against something like eight college teams ranked in the top 25 uh, in Division One, And I think the winner shot something like 20 under. What's it like kind of playing in a field of that caliber and what kind of went well for you? Uh, yeah, so putting for, for sure went well uh, for me. That's been kind of a um, kryptonite for me sometimes, but uh, been doing a lot of work on that and it certainly paid off. Um, you know, I always I always enjoy playing in the, you know, bigger tournaments with the, with the best fields. Um, they kind of just really, it gets me going a little more. Um, so to have, to have a good field is always something that I, that I really enjoy and it helps, and helps me play well too. Yeah. And you kind of noted playing in, in the great fields and obviously, um, last year in the big tens and, uh, also the other, other tournament you won last spring earlier in the year, those were also good fields kind of what you know, what kind of went well for you last year and then kind of take me through the period from last year until now. And I know you kind of didn't play as well in the fall, but you kind of feel feeling better about your game now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In the spring, I was hitting it really, really good. Um, and then the tour, the two courses that I, that I won at were both, both uh, pretty challenging courses with a lot of wind. Um, and anytime you get a, a challenging course with the wind, you, you really have to hit it well. Um, 
when there when there's a lot of wind, it kind of exaggerates any misses or stuff like that. Um, so I was kind of able just to to miss it the best, and that kind of that helped me with those those victories. Um, then kind of going into the fall, I wasn't hitting it as I was still hitting it good, just not as good as as I was in the spring. Um, so then I kind of that mixed with um, some not great putting, just kind of resulted in some okay finishes. Yeah, and uh, I know with the, the putting is pretty much kind of the thing that takes a, a good ball striker allows them to win a tournament kind of what's your you know mindset on putting I know a lot of people do it a lot of different ways and it can become kind of a mental thing even though it doesn't look that difficult to to do you know anyone can swing a putter mm -hmm. uh yeah no I definitely uh have tried to change my putting approach I guess if you want to call it um I think a lot of people including me before kind of their first thought is what what line do I want to pick here you read the green, you got to try to figure out the break. Um, but I think the most important thing in putting is the speed of the putt. So I kind of went with a different approach. I said, well, how hard do I want to hit this putt? Um, and then based off that, I then kind of, then I kind of picked my line. Um, so if I got a putt that breaks a lot, I'm going to kind of hit it softer, which then I have to then account for that and then play, play more break. Um, and then vice versa too for, for a straighter putt that I might hit a little firmer. Chris, I, I don't want to I don't want to interrupt, but I've seen you putt. To say that anyone can putt is is a lie because so, I've seen you, you do it what? and you can't. I <laughs> can't I, do it. He's got I, a pyramid putter. Has yeah. he told you that he bought the TV yeah. putter? Oh, he's, That's he's like it'll work. That. Yeah. See, if I told him if I had told him that, he'd probably stop talking to me. So <laughs> we want we want to keep that on the down low. <laughs> keep that going. Um, <laughs> to tee up the question. Mm -hmm. um you know you won the big 10 championships last year at crooked stick what does success or goals look like for you this year how do you sort of keep yourself hungry after you know a really successful year last year yeah for sure i would say my my you know long-term goals i guess kind of kind of go way way beyond the success i had there was i definitely understand there was a lot of success but um i'm definitely really hungry for more and i'm definitely nowhere near nowhere near where I want to be. So that's, um, that's really no problem for me. And I've never, never really had a problem with that. I've always been very, very driven and very, um, just, I got a lot of desire to be good at golf, whether, whether it's a tournament or just, I've always just kind of loved it and, and just want to be really good at it. I think I, I talked to you last week about it and you just said you were kind of always motivated. Was that just kind of how you've always been? Has did somebody inspire you to be like that or kind of how did you develop that mindset? Uh, my dad plays and my uh, grandpa plays. So ever, ever since I remember, I've always been kind of around golf. And I think I started, started playing when I was two or three years old. So golf has just always been a, been a major part of my life. So I've always just, it's just always been the centerpiece and I've just kept it, kept it going. So do you have a specific memory of golfing with your dad or him training you? Cause like, I know for me, my memory of golf with my dad is my dad yelling at me, you know, on the range, keep your, keep your head down. Remember the plane. I don't know if your dad did that to you, but. No, you no, he was, that? he was a little different. He was always more of the, you know, just go out there and have fun, just enjoy, enjoy your time out there and then see where it goes. And um, I guess it's gone in a, in a pretty good direction. And uh, I was kind of in preparation for this interview. And I would, cause I was curious if we, if we'd ever played in the same IJGA events, obviously opposite ends of the leaderboard, <laughs> but 
I, I saw you. I think you started playing in IJJ stuff in like 2014 or something like that. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was long, long before that. Yeah, um, maybe that's 2000, maybe, 2008, 2009 range. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's as far back as the records go. He yeah. was playing before yeah. time started on IJGA.org. <laughs> but you know, you were a, a highly touted recruit out of high school, a lot of success, and then kind of when you came to Iowa, at some, it was something like a 77 scoring average. You know, not. I was it was it what you expected? I know there's a in other sports there's usually an adjustment period when you move up a level. How did you kind of deal with that? Yeah, no. Um, I guess it was it was basically everything I expected. I just wasn't. I was I was in a pretty low low spot there coming into school. Kind of. I started working with. I guess growing up, I never had a swing coach or anything. Um, my dad would help me from time to time, but it was mostly just just kind of me. Um, and then Tyler wanted me to kind of go to a, to see a guy, maybe um, see what it, see what it would do um, before I got to school. And it, um, it didn't help uh, to say the least, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, and then, and then COVID kind of helped with the um, just kind of stoppage of, of anything and everything really. Um, so I was able to kind of process everything that I had learned, you know, hit the reset button and, and kind of build up from there, which I did. A, I did a pretty good job of. And would you would you kind of say that the pause? I know we've talked uh, prior about how it did help your technique, and you were able to you know get some get some new methods in there and swing thoughts and stuff. But I, I have to assume that it also helped you mentally. You know, kind of resetting everything and a, a kind of a new fresh start type of type of deal there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it kind of put everyone back on the same page in a way. Um, you know, because everyone was going to be going to be playing bad out of coming out of quarantine. So I just really that really kind of helped me and said, you know, you got a really good opportunity here to to kind of catch up with everyone. Um, and then I was able to connect with uh, Jeff Schmid, who was the old assistant, who now is the um, head pro at uh, Brown Deer over there. Um, and we got together and he helped me tremendously with my uh, swing technique. Um and I just kind of took everything he said and really, really worked at it, which which helped a lot. You talked a little bit about sort of your freshman year and, you know, how it was a tough time for you, both, you know, mentally and on the course. Um, and this is a question I can ask anyone who plays golf at a high level. Is the game still fun for you or is it does it seem sort of treacherous at times? Uh, no, I, I still think it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I've always that's that was kind of the reason that I got into the game. Um so that's that's always kind of stuck with me. It can um, it can be a little treacherous at times, though. But uh, that's just something you got to embrace when it comes to, comes to golf. Because you know, no matter how good you get, there's gonna be there's gonna be bad times. I mean, you can see that with Tiger Woods, greatest greatest player ever. He's got plenty of plenty of bad times in there too. Yeah, and then kind of just going back to you know re not retooling your swing, but kind of refining it. Did you have a turning point maybe throughout that process, the COVID and after that, where you kind of a light went on, like, oh, I can really compete out here. You know, I, I have the game to do it. Did you ever have a moment or a period of time where you kind of, you know, a, a light turned on for you? Yeah, for sure. I actually did. Um, so yeah, a couple of weeks after I started working with Jeff, probably two or three weeks, um, the swing stuff really kind of set in. And uh, my family's member up at uh, Crystal Downs in northern Michigan. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but um, that was a place I kind of always struggled. 
it's probably it's probably my favorite course but uh it just kind of didn't really fit my game i guess i never really played well there i think my low score was like 69 or 70 and then i went there after working with jeff and the swing stuff kind of set in and i shot 64 there and that and i had you know a couple good rounds i think i shot like a couple 67s and a 64 so i played like four or five rounds in a row that i beat my previous record there and that was kind of a moment where I was like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of playing golf at a whole new level here that I've never, never kind of experienced. And I kind of just took that throughout the, throughout the whole summer and fall, which um, we didn't play in the fall, but I think I would have, I would have done well there too, because I was playing well. And then I just was able to showcase that in, in the spring. So to go right off of that, I shoot 58 on nine and I saw your 58 score come across on social media for 18. Can you walk me through that round and what did something feel special to you that day? Or did you just go out there and hit it 58 times and go home? Um, I kind of just hit it 58 times and went home. Um, that was at my home course. I've played there, you know, a thousand times. Um, very comfortable there. Uh, and then that day I just, I made, I made 13 birdies, no Eagles or anything. Um, I kind of made, I made one long putt. I made like a 40 footer on hole seven, but other than that, all my putts were inside 10 feet. I kind of just, I hit my tee shot in the fairway. I hit it on the green to about five to eight feet. And I hit, you know, made the putt and I went to the next hole. I actually, you know, I was never, I was never nervous either the whole time. Kind of blacked out really. At the uh, end of the round, I, I was playing with my uh, best friend, Josh, and then my cousin, and I, as after the round, I had to ask them what I shot because I didn't know, I didn't know what I shot. So I go, "What did I shoot, guys?" I was like, "I knew it was good, obviously, but I was like, what I shoot?'" And they're like, "Dude, you just shot 58." And I was like, "Wow, that is." <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that coming down the last hole. And then I know, I think it was my some. It was right near then. I don't know if it was before or after, but I believe it was a 60, 62, 61 in a tournament, something of that nature. Um, yeah, no, I think that was um, that was on I think Saturday. I shot a sixty-two in a local tournament, and I think the fifty-eight was on Tuesday. Yeah, so it was it was like yeah, three or four day little little period in there. And so, do you did you kind of get in that zone as well in the tournament? And do you find yourself able to kind of get in that zone in the tournament? You know, like playing like you're playing with your cousin and your best friend. Is that something you've learned and gotten better at? Like not getting so nervous playing competitively. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to play, play in a lot of tournaments and, and play a lot of golf. Um, so I've always been very comfortable in the tournament aspect or, or going low. The uh, first time I shot 62 was in the high school qualifying for junior year. So I guess going low is not something I'm, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's something that's been familiar to me, I guess. So one thing I did want to hit on was sort of how you've stepped into being the ace in the hole, so to speak, uh, on the team this year, um, filling the sort of leadership role that was left by Alex Shockey, who is beloved on this podcast, and I'm sure on the team as well. Yeah, no, um, that was not the first time that's happened to me, actually. Our uh, our high school team won state seven years in a row back in Illinois. Um, we get a really good guy, Brennan O'Reilly, who went to Illinois. He was kind of a Chicagoland legend, I guess, growing up. Um, he didn't exactly pan out there at Illinois, but um, he left uh, after my sophomore year. So I was kind of forced to, to fill his shoes, which uh, honestly almost seemed like a taller task than filling Shockey's shoes, as big as Shockey's shoes are. Um, 
so you know I, I got a lot of memories and uh kind of input from that that's really helped me kind of do that again here here at Iowa moving off the wedges what's how would you characterize yourself at a, as a golfer like what's going well if you're playing your best you know obviously putting has to be but what would you say is your calling card I know uh when I talked to Stith he says um you're one of the best ball strikers on the team yeah for sure I feel like I um I hit it pretty good I kind of feel like I'm more of a an artist type guy if you want to say that I like to work the ball I don't like to just hit it kind of dead straight I kind of like to play play the shape of the hole play the wind um stuff like that I think that's I think that's the fun part in golf when you can if you can control your ball and then you know try try to do something and see it happen it is one of the best feelings in the world yeah I know that how long you're going to be uh here at Iowa might not be completely determined yet but do you think about legacy or um, records or any of the things you've done here or is that just stuff that you you know read a press release on when it comes out um you know I, I try not to think about that too much um you know I don't think thinking about it's really gonna really gonna help or do anything so um I kind of just try to let it happen and then you know hopefully it comes but if it doesn't that's okay yeah and earlier we kind of talked about you're just improvement from you know the 76s as a freshman to scoring average right around 71 now as a junior um what's kind of still left to improve and obviously it's a lot harder to go from 71 to 69 than it is to go from 76 to 71 right for sure um you know i don't really that's that's a good question um I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be on the on the PJ tour right now. But uh, I'm trying to figure it out, and I think it's really just you know, I mean, at this point, you're looking for you know just a little bit here and there. Um, you know, I think for me, putting is something that I can make a kind of a dramatic improvement, I guess. Um, so that's definitely an area for me that I'm going to work on. But then just it's just picking up little little bits and pieces over the next you know couple of years, and that that hopefully will will all add up to the 69 or 68 scoring average and you just you discuss putting I have to ask pretty much everybody this how much do they dabble in putting I mean I bought a putter off an infomercial but you know have you have you kind of you know arm lock all these different grips and everything like that have you ever tried to change that up or are you just more of you know fine-tuning what you already have well yeah so my putting thing my dad uses the um the broomstick putter the big big long one uh, so when I when I grew up playing the game, that's what I used too. Because I watched him, I learned to play by just watching him. So that's when I was when I was five years old. I was using an anchored anchored long putter, which um, didn't work out for me so well when they they changed the rule on us. So then I I went and dabbled with probably thirty different short putters and couldn't couldn't do anything with with any of them. Um, but then I found the arm lock, and that's been that's been a pretty good. Can you talk us through the team goals and your individual goals for this season? I think regionals are among them. Yeah, no, for uh, yeah, for our team, always the goal is always to get to regionals for sure, with a chance of getting to the national championship. Um, for us, that's definitely not out of the picture, but we got a lot of work to do. Um, so definitely, one of my goals is to to try to make it there as an individual. If we uh, if we don't get there as a team, um, I'm also looking for looking for another win. Um, kind of every tournament I go to, I'm trying to win, but to get one win the rest of the season. Um, and then also I want to get inside the top hundred in, uh, in WAG or the amateur golf rankings. So, yeah, you talked about, you know, 
the team goals and everything. And I have one more question about uh, the Hawkeyes this season. Who on the roster has the best swing? Ooh, obviously, other than myself, the uh, best swing, I'd have to say probably Garrett. He's got a, he's got a really good action. Sometimes he can be a little off uh, mentally, which can be a detriment to him. But his his swing is really solid. I and I had to I would have to concur. I've seen it on uh, Instagram multiple times, and it is rather buttery motion. Yeah. Can we talk about how Alex's swing isn't isn't that pretty to look at? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not the prettiest thing I've ever seen, but it, it sure works. It, it it gets the job done. It does. Um, Speaking of getting the job done, if you had to compare yourself to a PGA Tour player, who would you kind of compare it to? Ooh, never really, never really thought of this one. Um, could be, could be like a Victor Hovland. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. Never really thought about it, but if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd go with Victor. And is there one person kind of on the tour that you might watch close closer than other players? Is there somebody you might try to model parts of your game after no one you know in particular but i kind of you know I, I like to look at all the all the best players in each, each category um i looked recently working on my putting i looked at patrick cantley's putting stroke i mean he's got to be the best best putter on tour um so i went i went to his stroke and looked at that you know if you're looking for swing stuff you know go to adam scott or rory victor's got a good swing if you want to you know, if you want to chip and putt well, you know, you look at a Kevin Kisner kind of thing. Hideki's got a really good short game. Um, just kind of looking at all the all the best guys who do their stuff um, the best and best in the best in the world. So I know we're running low on time, so I'll wrap up with this. I'm going against producer Chris's script, but I want to ask you to you know, and you don't have to say yes right now, but you can later to commit to play in my country club's uh, four-man best ball so we can beat some sandbaggers that shoot net 58 every year. I figure the best way to fight that fire is to bring someone that, that shoots real 58. Uh, and we can just win it that way. I can just take all the money uh, so the NCAA doesn't doesn't get on you, but but the, just consider this your offer to, to come play, uh, play a tournament in parts unknown Illinois. Uh, potentially, <laughs> I don't think I can commit just yet, um, but I'll, I'll you, you send me the dates and where it's at, and I'll think about it. And I will counter with another offer. Would you like to play nine holes with me this summer, just like Alex did last year? He shot a 34 at Fink. Do you think you could beat that? I think I could definitely beat that. Um, that I'm definitely, I can say yes to that for sure. And do you think that if you gave me a stroke a hole like he did, um, you would beat me by more than one shot i think it was so you shot you shot 44 i shot 46 oh yeah 40 44 is correct oh shot a hole i mean i i think i could get you i mean we might have same to... tees or you, you play you play the golds oh i'm playing the gr- the grays what are you talking about the gray oh, oh geez right i'll hold it no no i'm no i'm playing the golds but you know what i also do i will allow you to play the golds oh i think i think you're in some trouble there okay that's no contest, Chris. We want it to be competitive. I know. I, yeah, you know I what? Think, I think I play the blacks. You play the golds. I give you a shadow hole. I think. I think we got a good match. Oh, sounds good. We'll bring some cameras. <laughs> bring some cameras. Bring some mics. We can each be be on our own cart. We can make it like the match. 
and I can I oh, can. I love that you're gonna. Is there gonna be a hundred million dollar prize? Oh, for yeah, just get get rid of the, some of those zeros, and you got a you got a deal. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely in for that. I can I can shank it just like Tom Brady. <laughs> I got that. All right, we'll get the pod wrapped up here. Uh, thanks so much to our guest Mac McClear for joining us. As always, I really appreciate my co-host Chris Werner for putting up with me. Uh, our producer, Carly Dahlberg, who will really, really have a large task ahead of her when she edits this. Um, if she can string this thing together, it'll be a miracle this week. We really appreciate her efforts. Uh, this podcast comes a long way from when the words leave our mouths to when the podcast hits your ears. And Carly does all of that work for us. Once again, if we were to make the analogy, she is the gas that makes the podcast go. We hope you enjoyed listening to us this week. We hope you join us again next week. As always, the lovely Daily Island scoreboard is brought to you by absolutely no one. Possibly the good folks at Rise Iowa City. I feel like that's that's another story for when that when it goes down there's going to be a huge you know t- talking about everything that went on there and the significance uh to the campus but that's 10 years down the road we'll be like we'll be like over 30 at that point Jeez. i'm I already I feeling like i'm over 30 you i mean you kind of look like you are just that's it's, nice. a, it's a good thing though good thing you look mature Bold of you to assume the earth won't collapse into flames before we I like I'm a you know what I'm an atmosphere half safe type type of guy. (laughs) (laughs) I uh I'm a a world won't blow up uh while I'm alive type guy.